0: Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Back in November, the iconic comedian John Cleese was joined by the internationally renowned psychiatrist Ian McGillcrest for two evenings at the West 83rd Ministry Center in Manhattan about the many connections between their different lines of work. On the second evening, which is presented here in its entirety, McGilchrist was interviewed by Cleese, and their wide-ranging conversation explores the differences between the left and right hemispheres of the brain, how they function separately to shape our perception and relationship to the rest of the world, be it an affinity towards poetry or trumped-up self-confidence. The first evening, where McGilchrist interviewed Cleese, is available in a separate episode, so check with your podcast provider please be aware that there is a slight echo in the recording. We have done what we can to limit it, but as McGilchrist would likely tell you, it's much harder to lie with audio than it is with visual media.
1: I have to tell you a slightly silly story, which was that I was at a Python lunch in Soho, and as we were breaking up, uh, Terry Gilliam said to me, you ought to read this book. And he told me a little bit about this book. So the only thing I have against this extraordinary book (laughs) is that Terry Gilliam recommended it to me. Um, And uh, uh, it's an extraordinary book because as I read it, things that had been puzzling me my entire life began to make sense in a way that other explanations had never made. But what I love about him is he started out as an Oxford don, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, are you going to hold that again? No, no, too? but it's not <laughs> so interesting. No, is no, do no you, it's the wrong <laughs> university. <laughs> no, no, it's, it, 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 it's all right. Um, what, what I liked about it was that you uh, taught English for seven years. No, no, you studied English because you were at All Souls, which doesn't have students. Well, I,
2: well, I did teach a few people, but I was mainly writing.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you kind of decided that we shouldn't be trying to explain poems. Yeah. yeah. you want to say it? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in
2: brief, I struggled with the idea that somebody in the past had taken great trouble to write something that they thought was worth communicating. And they did so in the form of something that was entirely unique. So you can't fiddle about with a poem, and it'll still be the same thing. And also, certain kinds of good poetry are simply irreplaceable. I mean, a very good example would be Gerard Manley Hopkins, for any of you who know him. I mean, nobody could have thought of this kind of poetry uh, if, um, if he hadn't. Uh, existed, so it was a very unique thing. It was also an embodied thing. I, it didn't just act on your brain in some strange, um, abstracted way, but affected you wholly as a as a living human being with a body. So it would make you, your heart beat faster, or your blood pressure change, or your hair stand up on end, or your ears come, tears come to your eyes, and quicken your pulse, and so on. So it was a physical thing, and an embodied thing. And it was also implicit. I mean, that's very important. It it struck me that being implicit was very important. And the problem was that this thing that was unique, embodied, and implicit, and that was its nature, clever chaps in Oxford came along and made it abstract, explicit, and disembodied and just went in the opposite direction to the work of art. So I wrote a book called Against Criticism... Um, I'm an expert at shooting myself in the foot. I had a, a, a promising career as a literary scholar, and I wrote a book called yeah, Against Criticism, <laughs> um, which, was, which, which nonetheless contained some criticism. I quite like paradoxes. And, and it was uh, published by Faber, and then unceremoniously remained it after selling a, a few hundred
1: copies. It's so funny to hear you, because I can remember, I was the victim of a good English education, you know? Um, so I uh, knew nothing about what I think will emerge from this talk about uh, the right hemisphere. I was so left hemisphere that I could remember looking at poetry and just saying, I wish someone would explain what this meant. What's it about? Why don't, why don't they just say what it is? Because I didn't know, I just didn't understand about anything that was the remotest bit right right hemisphere. And I only came across it quite accidentally when I I was at Cambridge and got into writing sketches. So what did you do as a result of this after your seven years at, at All Souls?
2: Well, I had this great privilege, which I think was excellent and sounds terrible now, which was that nobody asked me to do anything for seven years. And I was paid for it and given rooms and board and lodging. And, in fact, I could never have done what I've done unless I was given... A bit of free rein, because I didn't know what it was I was particularly interested in in doing. I knew it wasn't carrying on being a literary critic, and if I'd had to keep writing a paper every few months, it would have crystallised my thinking far too early. So I was allowed actually to explore and to think a lot, and I went to philosophy seminars because. I thought, this is about the mind-body problem, you know, because it's not just up here. We live nowadays so cerebrally, it seems to me, and yet these things are embodied beings. It's something about the mind-body problem. So I went to the philosophy seminars, and frankly, they were just all too disembodied, you know. I mean, the approach was one of uh, total abstraction. And I could have, you know, then spent my life um, in a subterranean seminar room in Oxford, um, apparently learning about the mind-body relationship. And at that time, Oliver Sacks produced the great book, Awakenings.
1: Oh! Yeah. And, um, well, what, what year was
2: that? Ooh, I think Nothing. that was in the um, mid, mid, mid to late 70s. I can't give you the exact year. Really? Yeah. yeah. Um, sorry if I keep coming and going but the... um, and it struck me as an amazing book nothing he wrote thereafter was anything like as good um, it took him 13 years and that's why it probably was as good as it was um, and it seemed to me to be fascinating because he was looking at what happens to somebody's not just their, 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 their mentation but what actually happens to their whole being in the world, their whole disposition towards life, their their personality, their attitudes, their interests, their everything, when something goes wrong with the brain? That seemed to me to be a much more interesting way of looking at the mind-body relationship. And he also did something totally brilliant, which was to see the general through the particular rather than by turning his back on the particular. So he produced what is rather rare nowadays detailed case studies of individuals that you could really see he was interested in them as individuals, but all the time in footnotes which his publisher allowed him to put at the bottom of the page where any sane publisher would allow you to put them uh, uh, in those footnotes he would then discourse about the, the philosophical significance. And this is just totally brilliant and it made me think what I really need to do is to find out more about this mind-body relationship not by sitting in a seminar room discussing it, but by actually seeing what happens to human individuals when something happens to their brain and it affects their mind or something happens to their mind and it affects their body. And so I went off and studied medicine. When I'd done that... So where did you I went, study I went, medicine? I went to Southampton. Oh. I went to the Oxford Medical School and oh. said I want to be a medical student, having been um, a fellow of all souls for seven years. And they said, that's fine, we'll take you, but you need to go to the poly and get your A-levels. Do, do we need to translate that. But, but basically it would mean going back to school, really, and starting again. Um, and having been part of this extremely rarefied academic community for a while, I didn't sort of kind of fancy that, but there were still four universities left in Britain where they would take people who had an arts background, who wanted to become doctors, preferably mature students, which seems to me sensible. Um, One of the things I think the American system has got right is that you can't study medicine as a first degree. You've got to have done something else. Unfortunately, that something else can be biochemistry. But it really... really (laughs) Nothing against biochemistry. You'll learn plenty of it when you do medicine. But really, what every doctor should know before they start even training is some grounding in the humanities, preferably in philosophy and literature, and then then go into medicine, because then you realise that the default assumption of every doctor, which is that this is all a machine, is not so obvious as it looks if you've never done any philosophy. Ah.
1: So then you were a doctor. Did you practice?
2: Well, I I, I did. I mean, Southampton had just been set up as a, a new university which encouraged uh, what they call uh, kindly mature students, um, and uh, and some of my colleagues who were fresh out of school were like so brave. I think I was 28. So brave of you to be doing it at this age, you know, like w- one foot in the grave, you know. And um, so I did. I did study that, and my idea was to go into the area um, of overlap between neurology and psychiatry. And in in, in Britain, it's a six-year training. I then did a couple of years in neurology and whatnot and then went and a a bit of neurosurgery at a very low level and then I went over to the Maudsley Hospital in London which is a big teaching hospital there. Um, It's the Bethlehem and Maudsley Hospital. I'm very proud of that. The Bethlehem Royal and Maudsley Hospital. Um, The Bethlehem Hospital being founded in 1380-something and the Maudsley being founded in 1914, 16, I can't remember.
1: Uh, So now, tell me about getting into psychiatry.
2: Well, Well, the Morsley Morsley is a psychiatric hospital, and and so I started working there and was totally gripped by what I was seeing. Um, Because it's um, a quaternary referral center, it means that a lot of the people are, you know, extremely enigmatic cases that other people three layers of them have scratched their heads over before they come to you. So you got to see some really intriguing cases, often what was then called organic. That means there was something visibly going on in the, in the brain. So the connection there was, was very strong. And one day I saw advertised you don't mind me spieling on like this. <laughs> one day I saw advertised a lecture by a man called John Cutting and it was called The Right Cerebral Hemisphere and Psychiatric Disorders. And I, I thought that was very intriguing. And then I thought, nah, I'll stay here and have another cup of coffee and uh, look at my notes. And then I thought, no, 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 come on. The right cerebral hemisphere, that's intriguing. Because in medical school, you know, we heard, we heard a, lot a lot about the left hemisphere, but very little about the right. It was sort of like, here be dragons, you know. And, 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 and maybe it makes people very good at at painting, <laughs> and, 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 and uh, it's something vague, vaguely pink and fluffy, but really all the hard work is going on in, in the left hemisphere. So I thought, no, I'm going to go and hear this. And I couldn't believe what I heard. This was a turning point in my life. There have been several, but this was a really important one in my academic life, or my, whatever you like to call it, intellectual life. Because John had just published a book with the same title, with OUP, And what he was saying was that, generally speaking, we hadn't thought much about what happens when people have right hemisphere strokes. When you have a a left hemisphere stroke, um, I'm sorry if this is very obvious to some of you, but let me just say it. And what happens is that, for most people, it means it impairs your ability to speak, and it means that you probably lose the use, at least temporarily, of your right hand. That's very striking. It's It's so striking that even medics can spot it. And the thing about a right hemisphere stroke is that you can still speak. And, okay, your left hand isn't doing so well, but, you know, we get by. But actually what, what he had done was patiently to sit by the bedside of people who'd had right hemisphere strokes. And what he found was that all kinds of fascinating things happened to their reality. So if I can put it this way, when their left hemisphere was damaged, they had difficulty speaking and using their hand, but they could could see, think, understand everything as normal. But when their right right hemisphere hemisphere was damaged, although although they could apparently function, they weren't actually in the same world. I mean, they really weren't in the same world. What do I mean by that? I mean that their experiential reality had a totally different
1: structure from the rest, the rest of us. So, so
2: how, um,
1: show me or tell me how you could spot that. How, what would you observe?
2: Well, often you wouldn't observe very much, which is why it takes someone quite observant like John to see it. But it's very plain when you do. He'd spent 20 years sitting at the bedside of people who got right hemisphere damage and just talking to them and seeing what happened. And a whole host of things happened. I mean, one of the, one most, of the striking most striking ones is um, denial. Did I talk about denial last night and the paralysis? I think I may. Yes, you did. So, for those of you who weren't here, just let me tell you this. That when you have um, a, a stroke in, in the right hemisphere, you may deny that there's anything wrong. So, you may deny completely that you have a paralyzed limb. And if your attention is drawn to it, you may deny its existence or say it belongs to the doctor or it belongs to another patient somewhere else in the clinic. But it's not your fault or problem, if you see what I mean, because everything is fine in the world of the left hemisphere. That makes people with right hemisphere strokes more difficult to rehabilitate because actually they're not aware that there's anything wrong. But much more interesting to me was he said a whole host of things. But he said... The right hemisphere is the one that understands the implicit. When you, when you say something that has to be interpreted because it's implicit, it's metaphorical, it's humorous, it's sarcastic, it's ironic, um, it's poetic, it's metaphorical. All, all of that, the left hemisphere takes it literally, and doesn't understand what's going on. So people with damage to the right hemisphere are rather puzzled. You know, um, you know, if I say to you. It's a little hot in here, you know. Um, uh, You know that what I mean is could you open the door or turn on the uh, the air conditioning or whatever. But people with using just their left hemisphere, that's your right hemisphere that tells you that, because it says in the context, that must mean... But people with uh, uh, right hemisphere damage are just puzzled as to why you're giving me this obvious piece of quite unnecessary meteorological information. So... So that was number one. The right hemisphere understands the metaphorical, and it understands the implicit, and it understands tone and facial expressions and body language. Now, this is back into the realm of, of art, of humour and of poetry. Mm-hmm. Number two, the right hemisphere is more in touch with the body. I mean, very literally, the body image, which is not just a visual image, but an image in every sensory modality is in the right hemisphere, not in the, not left. In the, left. the left. The left has parts, parts so it knows, so it knows the there is a nose, nose, and there are two ears, and there are you know, however many digits, but it doesn't, it doesn't know how they relate. It has no sense of the whole.
1: I was thinking of the book I read called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Ah, uh, yes, Betty Edwards. That's what no. you're talking about, because it seemed to me that if they said just draw a, a figure, a person... Um, you would basically go to the left uh, brain and what would come out would be something awful like a stick figure. Yes,
2: that happens. I mean, and after right hemisphere damage, people will draw after drawing an elephant, they may draw a disembodied trunk and then a tail and then finally an ear. You know, um, and, and well, you know, that is how the left hemisphere sees things. So um, to, to, to stick to the the point about this lecture of of John Cuttings, um, it was the right hemisphere that was in touch with the body, with emotion, with feeling in the body, and literally has richer, more profuse connections with the um, cingulate cortex, which is a place in the brain where emotion and reasoning come together, and with the so-called hypothalamic um, pituitary adrenal axis, which is what governs your automatic or autonomic reactions. Uh, You have no control over the the way your heart beats or you break out in a sweat. so. So that was the second thing. And the third thing was the right hemisphere understands the unique. The left hemisphere understands the category. It wants to put the unique into a category. And, of course, in reality, there are only unique things. But in order to help us find our way around, we lump them into categories. So what he was saying was that what the right hemisphere offers is an understanding of the implicit, an understanding of the embodied, an understanding of the unique, which the left hemisphere doesn't have. And the left hemisphere is the one that does the speaking. The right hemisphere can't speak. It has to to go via the left hemisphere. So that explained to me why it had taken me Years to write this book against criticism, in which I try to explain that when you make something explicit, you put it in the centre of the spotlight, of the glare of your attention. You change it. When you make it purely cerebral, it's no longer the same thing. And when you start talking about it in the abstract, and being very clever about your criticism, you've lost the uniqueness.
1: Yeah. Now, you then went to Johns Hopkins, Mm -hmm. Well, tell us about that, because this is the highly technical side of what you studied.
2: Well, yes, I mean, I had an interesting time. Um, My then wife, was uh, the mother of my children, was uh, American, and we thought it would be a good idea to take up the possibility of my doing a research fellowship at Hopkins, um, which was a great privilege and which I thoroughly enjoyed. But when I got there, I started to think various things about the implicit, because I kept saying things to people and they didn't seem to understand what I was saying at all. Um, uh, I would say something uh, which was not usually direct, um, like an English, uh, I'm afraid that's the way we talk, usually slightly oblique, you know. And people would look at me with a slightly puzzled air and go, Really? And then I go, Well, no, not really. But um, And I, I began to think there's something here about modernity and explicitness, you know. Um, okay. Well, so it was just
1: so they didn't get irony. That's what I'm hearing.
2: Well, yeah, and also they didn't seem to pick up what was not said. Ah. You know what I mean? I mean, largely we communicate. I say we, but we Brits tend to communicate a lot by going obliquely to something, yeah. and you pick up the kind of bit that wasn't said. But if I didn't say it, it wasn't there. So that that made made me think. Because I don't think it's just America. I think it's modernity. And there were lots of procedures and rules for things which we now have. I always say, in England, we get what you had five years earlier. So if you want to see the future, look at what's happening in the US. And, you know, there were rules and procedures for everything. Now, nowadays, of course, this is quite straightforward. You can't possibly know how to date a, a data member of the opposite sex without having read a large book. Um, and I know, I know the fears that lie behind this but it seemed to me that all's up somehow with the human race if we have to study a code before we're actually allowed to be let loose on meeting human beings uh, that aren't of the same sex. And so this, this got me thinking, there's something here going on in modernity and I was, my job was actually to look at brains and look at the asymmetries in the brains, and I learned very much about that, that people with schizophrenia don't have the normal asymmetry of the brain. Um, this is not an academic talk, so I haven't got slides, but believe me, your brain should be, very importantly, asymmetrical. In in various ways. I mean, in in loads and loads of different ways. The the (laughs) bit
1: at the back has got a lump on it, and the bit at the front's got a lump on it, and the right and the left. Right. has shown me this.
2: The right frontal cortex is expanded compared with the left frontal cortex. And And the right, and then, sorry, the left posterior cortex is expanded compared with the right posterior cortex. Um, and they are different weights. They, are, they have different greater white matter ratio. They have different gyral patterns on the surface. They use different uh, neurotransmitters, at least preponderances of them. They uh, respond differently to neuroendocrine hormones. And so there are a lot of differences. And, and, you know, as any psychologist will tell you, if you have a stroke in... The left hemisphere and you have a stroke in the identical spot in the right hemisphere, completely different things happen. So people who say, oh there aren't really any differences I mean that's, I mean, that's almost as den- much denial as, oh no this is not my arm, that belongs in yeah. you know, yeah. the next, the next cabinet. But, So I was looking at this and what happens in schizophrenia is these asymmetries are lost or reversed and this has fascinating consequences because Schizophrenia in many ways simulates a whole range of conditions that happen after damage to the right hemisphere. So if you wanted to take a perfectly normal brain and make it simulate the appearances of someone with schizophrenia, you'd put a lot of holes largely in the right hemisphere. It's more complicated than that, but that's a good rule of thumb. And right at this time, I received an excited postcard from John Cutting. We'd done some research together. um, Following his lecture, I went to talk to him. He read my book Against Criticism because it made a bridge with his work, and he said, come and do research with me. So I did. And then while I was in Baltimore, he sent me a postcard because this was long before email. And he said, you've got to read this book. And uh, I did. And this book was by a man called Louis Sass who's now a distinguished professor at Rutgers, professor of psychology Um, when I say distinguished that's not just my opinion that's part of his title and he he is an extremely brilliant man and he'd written this book Madness and Modernism and its subtitle is Insanity in the Light of Modern Art Literature and Thought and effectively, in this long book, in which he, he's, he's marvelously well-read, he, he knows literature, and he knows philosophy, and he knows psychology, and it's beautifully, lucidly written. And in this book, what he was saying was the phenomena of modernism, the ways in which discourse goes on in the public arena, in the modernist era, is extraordinarily like the way in which the world seems to somebody with schizophrenia. Now, it's not, now, it's not that we've got all got schizophrenia, schizophrenia obviously. That, <laughs> that, that, that goes without saying. But I knew, which I'm not sure Louis was so aware of at the time, that there is this extraordinary connection between the appearances of right hemisphere damage and the appearances of schizophrenia. So it occurred to me, maybe, what we're experiencing now is simply that we're not any longer properly in touch with what our right hemisphere is telling us. Mm-hmm.
1: So you were at Johns Hopkins and you were doing neuroimaging, is that the right? That's right. And yeah. you were seeing exactly what part of the brain was activated where a certain type of problem was being solved. Do you want to just explain well, well, I
2: was looking at structural differences in the brain. Um, So uh, I was outlining something called the inferior parietal lobule, which despite its name (laughs) is extremely important and and is one of the areas of so-called heteromodal association cortex, which translated into English means areas of the brain which bring it all together. And this is one of the most important areas, and particularly on the right. And in schizophrenia, this is of a different size. So that got me thinking all about differences in, you know, the brain, schizophrenia, and culture. And what I thought next was, okay, maybe there is something in... And I really thought a lot of... It didn't occur to me overnight, believe me. But I did, you know, thinking, mulling about Louis's work for a year or two, and, and researching hemisphere differences, as I've been doing for now for 20, 30 years. Um, I, th- I thought, there must, there must have been times in history when this was not so, mm. you know. Mm. Um, um, and, and so I thought, well, what can I see? And I, I thought about Romanticism, I thought about the Renaissance, I went back to the Greeks and so on. And gradually I began to see patterns that were recognizable. And that was the genesis, the start of the idea of the book
1: master and his emissary. So you've been thinking about this a long time, so when did you sit down to actually scribble some words?
2: <laughs> well, I found I, I it inordinately difficult. Um, I, I, if I put it this way, I just thought everything I know seems to connect to everything else I know. Everything I know in literature, what I know from philosophy, what I know from psychology, what I know from neurophysiology uh, and neuroanatomy seems to be terribly, terribly coherent. But I, I don't know how to make it a single narrative. Uh. It's like a cat's cradle, you know. And, and the problem th- was this. In order to explain A, I needed to explain first. B first. Yes. In order to, <laughs> to explain B, I needed to explain C. But unfortunately, in order to explain C, I needed to explain A. And this created a problem. And, uh, um, at one stage I actually went into therapy to discover why I wasn't writing this effing book because, <laughs> because uh, I very much wanted to write it and I know all the things like fear of failure and so on but I was long past that I didn't think anyone was going to read it anyway I just want no I, I'm not being funny I seriously didn't think you know, my last book had had you know, 400 readers and then been unceremonially remained and I just thought it looked the same but I want to write it before I die. And I think a handful of people, perhaps even a few hundred, will read this and go, this is very interesting. But after that, it'll be forgotten. So I just thought, I just want to get
1: the damn thing done. You know, what you're saying is very interesting. You talk about the linearity of the left brain, that it Mm. likes to put things in a sort of straight line. Yes. Right? Whereas the right brain is very gestalt. yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah, it's a kind of good start. So there you were trying to write in a linear way because you had to have the first line before the 20th line. You were trying to write about something that's completely connected. And where where do you start? And that's the thing I got from reading this book is the extraordinary number of connections that I'm constantly making through reading the book. Everything seems to fit with everything else. Well,
2: I'm glad that's the, the, the feeling that you get. And people have also said to me, it's a terribly left hemisphere book, you know, because it tells a very coherent linear argument and it uses enormous amounts of data and so on. And I always say, look, look, there is nothing wrong with the left hemisphere. Can I say this very loudly and clearly? We have a left hemisphere for a purpose. It's not just propping up the right hemisphere. And, and, and indeed, it's my second favourite hemisphere. I mean, for, I mean... For, yeah, can I say more? So uh, the, the problem is this, and this is a really, really important point, so please try and take this in. In, in the book, I, I really champion the importance of the right hemisphere, and this has one particular reason, which is that in a, our culture, we don't understand the importance of all the things that it's able to contribute, and so I need to kind of up its status a bit. Uh, nobody needs to buoy up the status of the left hemisphere. That's one reason. But the other is this. There is an important way in which the two relate. And it goes like this. Right, left, right. It's a three-stage process. And everything is like this in the way in which the brain takes it in. So quite literally, the first experience of something new This is from O'Connor Goldberg, who's a great American neuroscientist, um, and it's been well substantiated that new experience of any kind comes first and is, as it were, presented in the right hemisphere. It is then represented, literally presented again afterwards, in the left hemisphere, and is considered now familiar. So the right hemisphere is better at doing the unfamiliar. The left hemisphere likes the familiar. And the right hemisphere is good, as John says, at the gestalt, at the overall whole thing, the way everything is together, which is lost when you break it down into parts. The left hemisphere is very good at inspecting the parts, and that's an important thing to do. But once it's inspected the parts, that information needs to be reintegrated into the whole picture. It needs, therefore, to be delivered back to the right. And if I can give a very homely uh, metaphor for this, if you learn a musical instrument and you learn a piece that you think is attractive, you start to play it. And you do okay. But You realize, you know, the fingering at bar 18, I've got to keep practicing that, and you start to understand the structure, and you see that there there's a return to the... Dominant, dominant, and all this kind of stuff. So, so, so this is not time wasted. This is how you become a good performer. But the next, but the next stage, stage is that you must forget it all. Not literally forget it, but it goes into the unconscious again. Because if you go out on stage and you're thinking, fingering at bar 18, and here we go, you know, you, you won't really give a good performance. So it's it's got to be made explicit at one stage and then got implicit again at the last stage and this is if you like to think about it true of how we understand everything if we understand it properly but what is happening in our culture I believe is we go from the right hemisphere apprehension to the left hemisphere unpacking and then the left hemisphere goes well I've done my job now and actually I know everything because the left hemisphere has a very high opinion of itself and, and I'm, not, I'm not you might think I'm just being um, a little bit, uh, you know, uh, Metaphoric. metaphorical. But actually, uh, it's entirely literal. For example, there is a, a test called the WADA test, which is done before neurosurgery in order to make sure which side of the brain does speech, because it's not obvious. In 97% of right-handers, it is, in fact, the left hemisphere, but not always. And in left-handers, it's still 60% in the left hemisphere and only 40% in the right. So neurosurgery, just to make sure where is the area, they do this test, which involves injecting a barbiturate into the carotid artery, and for about 15 minutes afterwards, the hemisphere on that side is pretty much knocked out. So you can find out which one is talking. But some clever neuropsychologists came along and said, let's give... A, a personality inventory to the person in each of these conditions. And we'll, and we'll also give it to their friends and family. And we'll compare them. And what they found at the end was that the left hemisphere had a remarkably high opinion of itself. It thought it was pretty much damn perfect. Uh, the right hemisphere was more realistic, but a little bit on the kind of pessimistic side about itself. And this is, <laughs> this is a, 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 a real finding But effectively, the left hemisphere doesn't know what it is it doesn't know. That is such an important point to take on board, because when you look at the current political scene, when you think about many aspects of modern life, the people who are most full of conviction are the ones who know everything. And it's only because they know almost nothing that they think they know everything. And and the bright guys are much less sure that they know it. So anyway, so, anyway, there we were. Um, Where, were we? Where were we, actually? <laughs> well, I, think we're, I think we're doing rather
1: nicely. I mean, earlier you, you uh, pronounced the word representing as representing. Mm. And when I heard you do that, it helped me uh, understand the left brain because it takes reality that the, the right brain has, has in, in that moment, has experienced yeah. as a Gestalt, yeah. and then it kind of takes it over and represents it. Right, yeah. so that exactly it right. takes the immediacy and the specialness out of it. Because we're in the left, the left hemisphere is really about power, isn't it?
2: Well, that's a very good point. I mean, the
1: you know you break things up into pieces so that you can manipulate them and exploit things.
2: you're, you're absolutely on the money there. <laughs> um, an easy way to put it is that the left hemisphere is the extremely useful map the right hemisphere is the terrain that is mapped. And a map is useful because it leaves almost everything out. Its job is not to be a representation, literally a reality. If you have a map of how to get from here to Washington, you really want to know the route that you've got to take. But you don't want to know that in this particular house that you pass on the freeway, the dog is called Fido, and they're growing um, marijuana in the back garden. Because actually, that may be true, but it's not the point at the moment. So the left hemisphere simplifies the world enormously in order to be very useful. So there's nothing wrong with it. The mistake is when you mistake the map for the terrain. I say terrain, not territory. Um, Alfred Korzybski um, talked about the map and the territory. This is very strange because
1: I was just trying to remember his name. Well, I can
2: well, remember I can his remember name, name. I think Korzybski, uh, because uh, I was honoured by being asked to give the Korzybski annual memorial lecture a few years ago in New York. But any, in any case, I prefer territory. Uh, sorry, terrain to territory, because territory is like what as it were in a military campaign, you you subjugate, whereas the terrain is the thing in which you actually live on a level with the earth. So that's the difference. And the thing you just said about power and manipulation is brilliant. If you wanted a a, a very quick and dirty soundbite, the raison d'etre of the left hemisphere is to make us powerful, to enable us to manipulate. It's the bit that controls the right hand, with which, for most of us, we manipulate tools that makes us able to make machines, to become powerful, and it's also the one that controls the bits of language, not the whole of language, but the bits that are to do with saying, oh, I grasped it. I've got it now, and I put it in my pigeonhole whereas the right hemisphere is more in touch with reality. Now, how on earth did that happen? And that's something I don't talk about in the book, but I do talk about in the book that I'm now writing, amongst many
1: other things. The thing about the map and the terrain that that fascinated me was the realization that some people prefer to be guided by the map. In other words, if you put a map in front of them and then say this is a map of the terrain that you're looking at there, and you say to them... Uh, is there a bridge? They will look at the terrain and see the bridge, and then they will look at the map and the bridge be there, and they'll decide that there isn't a bridge. You know? And you begin to see this very clearly after time with people thinking that they literally can't. And it's like determinist, um, reductionist, uh, materialist thought in science.
2: Well it, well, it is. We could come on to that. Because they, they won't
1: look at certain things that are on the terrain because they don't fit with their map.
2: No, I like that. And I think that's absolutely right. Um, but I have actually had this experience, maybe you have, um, driving somewhere um, with somebody and uh, they're saying, okay, uh, our destination, uh, according to the sat-nav, is coming up on the left. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm saying, no. <laughs> no, there's no way. This is not the the something hotel, you know, it, it's not even the right town. And they're saying, well, the sat says it. <laughs> and uh, and 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 then they can get quite defensive. Have you noticed how people are very defensive about machines? There's a certain class of people who won't hear a word against a computer. um, You know, they want the machine to get full respect, and they'd far rather that than a human being got any kind of respect. But the thing is that sometimes machines are
1: very clever, but sometimes they can get it wrong. I told you about yesterday morning with the maid. I came out of my room and I had the, the privacy light switched on. And I came out, and the maid was there. And I don't usually want maids to come into my room, because they come in and hide things. You know, it's part of the maid training program in most of the hotels. <laughs> and, and I came out, and I said to the very nice maid there, could you come in and do my room now? And she nodded and smiled, and I started walking down the corridor. And I thought, there's something wrong. I said, is there, are you all right? And she said, well, the, the privacy light is on. LAUGHTER and I said, it's all right, I'm the only person in the room, and I would love you to go into the room. And she really didn't want to, so I had to go back into the room, turn the privacy light off and leave, so that she could then go. It's that extraordinary literal mind
2: Well, I've actually had the experience of talking to my bank, and they asked me for my date of birth, and I gave it to them, and they said, no, sorry, you're wrong. LAUGHTER and, and yes, it's, a, right. it's like that wonderful moment in, in the Holy Grail, is it? Where it's, what is your favourite colour? You know, it's blue, green or whatever. It goes boing off well, into
1: the... I universe. get a terrible one. I always get well, what are the questions about my marriage. Oh, and yeah. I say, well, which one? And they, they refuse to tell me. It's not the security coders. I'm not supposed to guess which date they want. Anyway, let me read read this just to get us thoroughly into the book. You say, my thesis is that for us as human beings, there are two fundamentally opposed realities, two different modes of existence. Each is of ultimate importance in bringing about the recognisable human world and their difference is rooted in the bi-hemispheric structure of the brain. But I, I want you to talk more about experience because you think we, we often ask questions, uh, in your opinion, incorrectly of the brain by regarding it as a machine and yeah. saying, what does it do? And you're saying yeah. that, that the hemispheres, it's not so much what they do, it's, it's about the world they experience. Yes.
2: yes, it's more about how they do it than what they do ah. And, and you're right. No, you're absolutely right. It's, it's about a mode of, mode of being. Or I, the, my preferred expression, which sounds a little bit awkward, but I think it can't be improved on, is a way of being in the world. And any of you who know your Heidegger will know that that is an expression which is basically a translation from Heidegger. But the point is that we think... First of all, I, I think we got it wrong about the hemispheres... The differences, you know, in the old days they said, "Well, the left hemisphere
1: does." Uh, yeah. uh, well, languages. this is what Roger Sperry won a Nobel Prize in seventy. Uh, yeah, about then, seventy something. And then ago. his idea, the split brain stuff, got oversimplified, didn't it? it and got almost oversimplified. discredited the whole notion.
2: Yes, and the problem was that we talked about the brain as a machine and asked the question, "What does it do?" And if you answer that question, the answer that was given was reason and language in the left hemisphere and pictures and emotions in the right hemisphere. But little by little, it came out that both hemispheres are involved in everything, absolutely everything. In fact, one of the most strongly lateralized emotions is anger, and it lateralizes to the left hemisphere. So it's not a, a cool, um, reliable customer at all. In fact, it's deeply deceived Um, yeah it's not good at apprehension of reality but actually in the book I'm writing now I'm explaining that that's not its job I mean it's wrong to expect it to be the right hemisphere's job is to do the watching of reality the left hemisphere's is to make sure that we can make um, entirely um, consistent deductions within a closed system but as for leaping out of the system you see that's another matter. Now, you know can, them, I, can I tell you yeah. the story? Can, let me tell you the story. Yeah. About, <laughs> let me tell you, me tell you, story you the story about, about, about um, and I have, and a, I have a lot of correspondents, and one of them is an American correspondent who's a, a, a doctor and a librarian. And she said a friend of hers got the message, Your brother has been killed in a mining accident. And she thought, Oh my God. And she went to the hospital, and um, she was taken down to the morgue and they opened the drawer, and she, that was indeed her brother. And she bent to kiss him, and she thought, that's a bit odd. He's slightly warm for someone who's been in a deep freeze, but, you know, there you go. And then she put her hand on his wrist, and she could feel a distinct but faint pulse. And she went over to the nurse who was <laughs> compulsorily in attendance, and said, um, you know, I, I, I wonder if my, my um, brother could be alive. And, and the nurse replied with the immortal phrase, don't you worry about that, my dear, it says quite clearly here on this piece of paper that he's dead. <laughs> now, I think we live in the world in which, you know, that bit of piece of paper trumps, if you'll pardon the blasphemy, um, the, uh, trumps the reality. That's the world we're what in. What I was going to say was that I noticed I had a
1: very intellectual friend, but I think he was not very interested in, in anything from the right hemisphere. What I realized was <laughs> that he was much more concerned that his theories were internally consistent oh, absolutely. than he was about whether they actually corresponded to something in the real world.
2: I must know your friend. Yeah? I mean, I think I've met him in various
1: guys. You quite often. It, yeah. it shows what happens with intellectuals who uh, don't pay any attention to the right hemisphere. And I think I quoted to you what George Orwell said once, which was only an intellectual could believe that. No. In other words, do you see what I mean? I uh, the think
2: said, only an intellectual could believe something so stupid. Yes, yeah, that's what he
1: meant. And in the same way, I think sometimes that one, well, one... The only advantage I have sometimes, I think, is that I'm actually trying to compare what you're saying with my own experience, whether a true intellectual out there would be comparing it with what someone else had said about it.
2: Well, quite. Yeah? So you get back to the sort of medieval world where It was important that the whole system hung together, never mind whether it corresponded to anything that was actually experienced. And and, and when I say the medieval world, of course, I don't mean the ordinary medieval world. I mean the intellectual medieval world um, of scholasticism, in which everything refers to something else that's within the code. And you have Galileo
1: saying, please look through my telescope and you will see the craters on the moon. That's and right. the scholastics saying, it's not necessary to look through your telescope. We know they're not there.
2: Well, there's an exact parallel to that, which is, I don't know if any of you have heard of Rupert Sheldrake. Anybody? Yeah, good. Well, Rupert, I think, is a very, I think after he's dead, sadly, he will be um, considered a landmark in, in the history of the development of science because he is actually one of the few scientists left. When anomalous findings come up, he doesn't say... Um, okay, that can't be right because it doesn't fit with the paradigm. He said, "Okay, let's do some proper controlled experiments and see whether there's anything in it." Now, for doing that, he has been ostracized by mainstream science. And he had a debate with, I think it was Wolf, but I may have got this wrong. Um, it could have been Dawkins. Um, and he's he done, done a lot of was it? And he's done a lot of work on um, telepathy. And he's done, you know, repeated experiments. He's asked people to repeat them for themselves. And so he has a mass of data um, to do with, you know, guessing who it is that's calling you, um, uh, things like that on the phone before you answer it. And he said to Lewis Wolpert that this data was there. And he said, well, that's rubbish. And um, he said, well, I've got the, the, the data. You can look at it, and you can replicate it. And he said, I don't need to look at the data. I know it's rubbish. Now, to me, that has nothing to do with science. I mean, that simply is indefensible. I was telling
1: you yesterday about a fellow, Stan Groff, a brilliant psychiatrist who was brought to America by the American government because he knew oh, yeah. more about LSD than anything else. He was talking to Carl Sagan once and talked about a particular thing that had happened with a patient, of his, where the patient had information that the patient could not possibly have got in any ordinary way, yeah. and yeah. Carl Sagan simply said it, it, it didn't happen. Yeah. That was his attitude to this bit of evidence. I think he said it can't have happened, it can't have happened. Which is yeah. unscientific. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not
2: interested now, in the pros and cons of whether these things can happen, that's secondary problem. The first problem is you can't know whether they happen or not unless you do a lot of hard work. And if scientists are not prepared to do the hard work don't stigmatize everybody who does and comes up with a result, we'll simply never move forward.
1: Well, they want to hang on to what they know and what their reputation has been built on it's, it's, they, they really do. It's it.
2: very understandable in human terms. Yes, yeah, so and also one I of think my problems Max is Max Planck,
1: who said that uh, science uh, science progresses one funeral at a time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what are we going to do now? You've got to. Uh, well, I, I was what just what what gonna, I've got just
2: going to say. say something, yeah, um, which is. <laughs> Which is another really important issue which I'm addressing in the book I'm writing now is that we only understand things metaphorically. When I say I understand it, what I mean is I see that it's like something else which I believe I already understand. So the process of understanding is always comparing something that is less familiar with something that is more familiar. Now, it depends very much what you start from as your familiar thing. And there isn't a, a kind of logical plan for that. You, can, you have to make a leap of intuition. Now, the, 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 the model that is used in science at the moment is simply that of a machine. So effectively, the way we try to understand the brain is like an enormously complex, infinitely more complex pop-up toaster. So the way a machine works is the way the brain works. But it isn't actually necessarily like that. And if you model things differently, you see different things. For example, if you think about going to um, a baseball match as like going to the betting shop, you see one aspect. If you see going to uh, a baseball match... Uh, for the day with your family as something akin to going to church, you see a completely different thing there. Now, everything is like this. Depending on the model you bring to compare it with, certain things will stand out and other things will recede. But The problem is that although a mechanical model works very well for tiny details of an organism, it isn't a satisfactory model of the organism as a whole. And there are at least eight ways in which an organism is nothing like a mechanism. And we haven't got time, and I don't want to go into them now, but read my next book. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, I mean, that's just another example. It that, because this
1: has happened several times, that just as I'm thinking about something, you switch to it, because I just wanted to tell you uh, the thing you say uh, about d- well, we're in different, t- different it, attention. You say things change according to the stance that we adopt towards them the type of attention that we pay to them, the disposition we hold in relation. This is important because the most fundamental difference between the hemispheres lies in the type of attention. And you talk about birds
2: eating. I often talk about birds. Birds. Tell us about birds. Um, Okay, yeah. Um, when, When I was approaching this rather difficult and highly stigmatized topic, All my colleagues said, you know, don't touch hemisphere difference with a barge pole because you won't have a career because everyone's decided there's nothing in it. However, minimal logic suggested to me that, you know, the structure of the brain, which has been maintained all the way up evolution, that there are these two asymmetrical bits, is probably not by accident. And we need to just find out what the difference is. Okay, the ones we were identifying were wrong. But there might be something in it that there is important to investigate. Now, while the, the sort of so-called human neuroscientists, I don't mean the rest of the machines, but I mean the ones that are studying humans, had dismissed it, the animal uh, neuroscientists and animal ethologists studying animal behavior had simply noticed that birds and animals use, quite reliably, their left or their right eye, or sometimes their left paw or their right paw, for different purposes. It's not entirely consistent, but there is a strong, very, very highly significant effect. And broadly speaking, what this is to do with is a problem of survival. What they noticed is that animals and birds need to do two very difficult things at the same time. And they may not sound difficult to you living in New York in 2018, but these are how to eat and stay alive. Because most animals and birds can't just pop into a deli. They have to actually find their food. They have to notice the seed against the background of grit and, and, and focus on it and pick it up rapidly ahead of uh, another bird. But if that's all they're doing, they'll become someone else's lunch while they're getting their food because they need to be looking out at the same time for predators and for their conspecifics and for whatever else is going on in the environment. So you have two types of attention paid by uh, birds and animals. One by the left hemisphere, which is narrowly focused, very precisely focused, but targeted on a tiny detail, which enables you to get things, to pick up a twig to build a nest, to pick up a seed or to latch onto a rabbit or whatever it is. But the right hemisphere is watching out for the whole picture, looking out for prey... And looking out for everything else. So these differences are very marked and they can't be denied. And indeed, no neurologist in the world, I think, who knew anything about this topic could deny that one of the fundamental differences in the human brain between the left and the right is attention. It took me a long time for the penny to drop. I thought attention, oh yeah, um, another cognitive function. But it isn't just a cognitive function. Attention means nothing other than the way in which you dispose your consciousness towards the world. Not, a, not just where you dispose it, but how you dispose it, the manner in which you dispose it. And that changes the world. It changes I, the perception of the world. Well, it, you may say that, and it certainly does, but I would go one step further and say, what do we know about the world that we cannot know? And I would say, about the world we cannot know, we can by definition know nothing. So the, so the world we know, however much it's composed of science or anything else, is the world as presented to us. And I don't mean we make it up. Uh, there's clearly something that exists apart from me. When I'm not looking at the moon, it doesn't suddenly disappear and then pop back into place, uh, um, you know, um, uh, uh, like a naughty pupil when I look up to see where it, where it is. So uh, I'm not saying that, but I am saying that the world comes into being between us and this something other than ourselves. Say that again. The world comes into being between ourselves, between us, between you, between me, and this other that is not just the interior of my consciousness and out of those two things which is a reverberative process in which each as it were calls to the other so that your attention is directed by and not just random uh, it, it, it's kind of it, it, it's, it's, it's drawn into being by whatever it is out there and and as much our idea of it is drawn into being So there's a reverberative process in which whatever it is comes about. And it's slightly like a relationship between two very loving people that they change, their relationship changes who they are. I mean, not completely and utterly, but in that relationship, they find out not only who the other is, but who they are and these two things are also dependent partly on the relationship and when the relationship goes also each person that was in that relationship changes Mm. so attention is a very creative thing and we're doing it all the time and by doing it we're molding reality
1: I had a friend who who, who just didn't like this idea and I was able to show him a thing that was shot at Cornell Um, the basketball there are two teams. One black yeah. shirts, three of them. White shirts, three of uh, them. Oh uh, yes. And yes. they're passing. The white shirts have got the ball, and they're passing from the white shirt to the white shirt, the white shirt, the white shirt. And the audience is asked to count the number of passes. And you can see, particularly the men, particularly the men. And you ask at the end how many passes. Uh, And they say, 22. No, no, 23. Somebody says, no, it's 21. So, okay, all right. Now, what did you think about the gorilla? (coughs) And they say, what? And what happens in this film, while the ball is being passed around, is that a man in a gorilla suit walks out through the players, stands in the middle of the players, does that, and then walks off. (coughs) (laughs) <laughs> the interesting thing is the people who laugh it's always women's laughter because women don't focus in Do you see what I mean on this blind way but I had to show it to my friend to show that the way that you attend to something really changes the way that it is
2: for you that's a, yeah that's a very nice illustration and uh, another one that's terribly relevant to social change is uh, that I was shown um, when I was training is a picture of a street scene and you, and see, you see a car in the foreground and some shops and you're know and, and you, and you asked watch this film and it lasts for a minute and at the end and you're asked to say what changes you watch this film you cannot see anything change and at the end of it they say nobody spotted what changed and then they start the film again and you realise that the the car that takes up about a third, a very large part of the screen in the foreground. At the beginning of the film it's red, and at the end of the film it's blue. And because the change is made very slowly, you don't notice it. And you can actually change. I mean, this has big political and societal significance. Very gradual changes can be made without people noticing that they've happened until it's too late like the frog in the hot water I mean the only thing I'd say about that is that's a demonstration of how we don't always see everything we, you know when, when we tend. We, we sometimes get it wrong but my point is slightly different which is that whether we get it right or wrong that our only chance of contacting reality is through the way our consciousness is disposed and we have a part to play in what there is I mean literally We can make a better world by attending to it in a different way. And if you'll excuse me for making um, a a, a remark which uh, uh, strikes a rather somber note, but I think it's an important one. There is a French existential philosopher called Louis Lavelle, and he said, love is a pure attention to the existence of the other. And I don't know any better definition of love than that. And it applies not just to love for a person, but it's also love for nature, love for um, uh, anything that you experience, a piece of music. It's the purity of your attention to it that actually brings the thing to life and brings the person into being for you. And that is a kind of love. It's your devoted attention for a while to whatever that is. So... um, Attention is this very, very, very important foundational element in whatever it is that exists.
1: You want us to talk about 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 music music. a lot? <coughs> I do. Yep. I love it. Love it, it. don't you? I love it. Love and it. what you, you you point out that uh, the right hemisphere listens to music because the left hemisphere can't cut it up into individual moments, very satisfactorily. Is that more <laughs> Is or less that, right? Well, it's, it's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it,
2: it. It's a complicated story because professional musicians use their left hemisphere more than the right, and there are various theories about why that may be. They may be more analytic. They may be more used to reading scores from left to right, which is exactly like reading a book, um, which which require your left hemisphere. Um, It may be that, uh, for a whole host of reasons. Um, I prefer the the explanation that actually when they're performing a piece, it's by then become familiar. They've practiced practiced it and practiced it. So it's no longer actually the new thing. It is so familiar. Because get this, Bach However familiar, and whoever whoever is performing it tends to activate the right hemisphere. And that is, in my view, because Bach is the one composer whose music is always new every time you hear it, because you simply can't attend to all of it. You have to prioritize something, and it's in fact the attempt to hear it all and hear the detail at the same time that makes it such a fantastically vivifying experience I think he's a profoundly intellectual composer and a profoundly emotional composer and a profoundly spiritual composer all at the same time thank you now anyway um, but but it is true that for most people in this room almost everything in music is in your right hemisphere so melody not appreciated by the left hemisphere. Um, Rhythm, uh, only simple ones. Complex ones, syncopated ones, cross rhythms, the right hemisphere. Harmony, distinctly the right hemisphere. So the right hemisphere is able to see this flowing whole because a piece of music is not actually a series of notes. And it's not in the notes, by the way. Um, I sometimes say to people, you know, Let's take the scientific method here. Let's find out what music's made of. Well, uh, I have used my um, musicoscope, and I've discovered, after um, a, getting a three million pound grant and subjecting a lot of people to um, listening to uh, Haydn, that um, uh, fake words and that no, it's not quite true. But, uh, that, that it's made up of notes. So, what, is, so what is, a note? is a note? Well, okay. So, take a note. Let's take a. Uh, an A-flat. Um, let's see, what, what, is it, what does it mean? <laughs> Actually, it means nothing at all. So let's, let's try again. Let's take another one, a B. What does that mean? Absolutely nothing at all. If you put 30,000 together of these, you've got Schubert's C major quintet, which is one of the most life-altering experiences, in my view, that you can have listening to it if it's well played so something magical happened. we put lots and lots of things that mean nothing at all together we didn't add anything else and somehow we've got something that is powerfully meaningful so where is the meaning well it must be something else it must be in the gaps but the gaps between the notes are nothing they're just silence the gaps between the harmony are just vacancies so if you add a lot of things that mean nothing together with a lot of nothings that by definition mean nothing you have something bigger than almost anything in the world. How did that happen? And the answer is, it exists in betweenness. And only the right hemisphere seems to understand betweenness. By betweenness, I mean not just this plus that, or even this plus that plus the little space in between, but something new that comes into being when they are put together. And it's, it's like an electrical current. If you, take, if you want to understand electricity, you look at a circuit and you see, oh, there's a positive terminal and there's a negative terminal. Where is the electricity? Let's have a look at the positive terminal. Nothing, no electricity in it. Let's look at the negative terminal. No electricity in it. So let's look at the space in the middle without the terminals. Nothing there. So actually, it's the terminals and the space and what they make together. Something new arises. And the universe, basically, is entirely made up like this, out of nine particles that we can identify comes the redwood forests of California, comes a polar bear, comes um, a mathematical equation. Now, how does this happen?
1: last thing I want to ask you before we get some questions is this. <clears throat> it seems to me that in an argument about, shall we say, values, the left hemisphere is in a stronger position because it's the centre of speech and because it thinks it knows everything and wants to be right and thinks that other people are wrong. So it's, it's hard to argue with it, isn't it? Because it has the, has, has words on its side.
2: It's a very good point. In, in many ways, it's money for old rope to argue an entirely reductionist position because you, you, you just string together some logical sentences using certain propositions. Now, As long as you don't allow into the picture lots of other things that aren't accountable in these terms, that's fine. But the trouble is that it, it doesn't do the thing that I have just tried to explain but I found there are hardly any words to explain. You have to in many ways consult the part of your brain, the part of your mind that is able to experience things that are simply not been captured in words. And not everything that exists is best expressed in language. Language is a useful tool. It enables us to think some things, but blocks out the thinking of others. It enables us to communicate some things, but between us in certain situations. It's the ping- like, finger
1: pointing at the moon. Too.
2: It's the finger pointing at the moon, where You think it's the finger, not the moon. And, you know, good examples of situations in which language is not very good are like when you're in love or when somebody's partner dies or actually when you're trying to do therapy sometimes. Language can be a wonderful vehicle in all these situations, but it can also be an impediment. So there's, so there's much that we think and much that we know and much that we communicate, which we don't use words to do. And so when you say it's very easy to articulate a certain point of view, I think you put your finger on it, that it's just, you know, it's, it's so easy to stand up and, and sound terribly clever because... But how do uh, you argue, without, argue
1: against it? I use humour, you see, because I think, I when you right use humour in an argument like that, it brings something else in that isn't purely logical. I, I, I completely yeah. but agree. But if, if you're arguing with Richard Dawkins, how do you get him to come out of his sort of closed system of thought? What can you say that draws his attention out of his closed system?
2: Well, I'm quite a busy man, and I wouldn't waste time trying to argue with him. Richard Dawkins I mean he's completely fixed it. he's not going to change his mind for anybody and you know it's like the thing that you said about Max Planck that you know it's not that, new, that people change their minds it's that the people who are completely rigid die and somebody else uh, comes in their place I don't think that there are people like Dennett and Dawkins growing up now I think that they're seeing that the world is just not well accounted for in those terms well that would be nice
0: You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is "Cut and Shoot" by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get twelve issues for twenty-one ninety-seven, visit harpers.org/save.